First Timothy chapter one, verses 12 through 17. We'll hear what God says. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him For eternal life to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for the rhythm that you have given us that we might gather on the Lord's day on Sunday, the day of Jesus, your resurrection, that we might be a people who walk in newness of life because you have risen, defeating death. We thank you that you have been so gracious and wise as to entrust to us your truth, your doctrine, your teaching, um, the communication of yourself to us in your word. And so we thank you that your word is infallible and errant and living and active, speaking even now. So God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you soften our hearts and help us to receive what you have said in faith? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So God, would you speak to us today? Even now, even us, would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'm coming up on uh, on eight years uh, as pastor of Blaine Baptist Church. And I, uh, and mid-September will be like official. But I, you guys, you, you guilty ones who are here, I'm just kidding. Uh, you voted me in on, uh, on August 10th of 2014. So it's te- technically eight years you've, you've signed up for the gig with me. Uh, but if you guys remember, on the, on the 10th, we, we voted, you guys voted, I didn't vote then, I didn't have a vote. Um, but on, the, on August 8th, uh, another, uh, probably bigger, it was it, not probably, a significantly bigger deal happened in my life. Uh, on August 8th, 2014, uh, two days before I preached here for a vote uh, in view of a call, uh, I asked Sarah Beth to marry me on August 8th of 2014. So the church really had no choice. You know, I came in freshly engaged and they couldn't, uh, they couldn't really dash my hopes. So it was all part of my plan. Uh, <laughs> It's a joke, guys. A joke, a joke. Uh, but you know, when when we got, it was, there's a whole funny story that I'm not going to tell you about the night that I, I told Astrid to be married. And, no, we don't have time for all that. We don't have time. Uh, she was, she had no idea. I'll say that. She had, we went for a walk on the beach after dinner, 
and she had no idea. And so she was telling me all these stories of, you know, we were down in Wild Dunes and uh, she's telling me about houses, you know, Fritz Holling's house that burned down. And I'm trying to have this like, you know, how much I love you. And I'm really, you know, yada, yada, yada. I don't have no idea what I said. And, uh, and she, she's totally oblivious until we finally popped the question. And, uh, but in pre- preparation of that, you know, you guys who, um, who have proposed, um, usually, um, and if you're contemplating this down the road, uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. You know, uh, we had to buy a ring. And I bought, I bought a diamond ring. And um, for those of you who don't know, I, have, I was absolutely shocked about how expensive a diamond ring was. <laughs> and so, um, and then, you, so this is like this two-edged sword where you have to, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work up the gumption of like, I'm going to ask her to marry me forever. And then I've got to sign up for this like large uh, amount of money. And why, why do you do that? Well, because diamonds are expensive, Right. Uh, now, I'm not telling you, I'm, this is no, like, I'm not making a moral judgment about, you know, giving diamonds and all that kind of stuff. That's not the point of this. Uh, but diamonds are expensive, expensive because diamonds are, uh, in, in considering the whole scope of the globe, they're relatively rare. Uh, and if you know how a diamond is formed, I, I, was, I was researching this for just a split second, right? I used to think that it was like a piece of coal that got like a lot of pressure and heat. And it's not quite like that, but it's, uh, you know... Carbon atoms, which are very similar to, to the beginnings of coal, but carbon atoms are deep within the earth and they are subjected to large amounts of heat and pressure. And they, are few, and they become fused together as these crystals. Um, but if you've ever seen a, a raw diamond or where someone finds a diamond, it, you would not recognize a diamond that's found in a diamond mine uh, versus a diamond that you find at K-Jewelers K or somewhere or Jared or wherever else, Right. You know, a raw diamond is when you, when you pluck it out, it is covered in mud. It is misshapen. It's oddly shaped. You would not want to wear the thing on your on your finger. Uh, it, it takes work, right? It takes a jeweler eventually, right? You have to take it from the, the muck and the mire. You have to clean, clean it up and see what it is, see what, what sort of diamond it is, if it has whatever colors that are, are kind of baked into it, depending on the minerals that were surrounding it. And, uh, and there, it has to go from there and eventually come to a jeweler's desk who has to use diamonds, diamond dust, to help cut it, right? The diamond has to be taken from where it was, it has to be cleaned, reshaped, transformed, and to make it into something beautiful. When Paul enters into this part of 1 Timothy chapter 1, he is using his life as a test case or as an, a living example of the power, the transformative power of the gospel of Jesus. And if you remember where we've been, he is contrasting the authentic gospel of Jesus with the, um, the impotent, not powerful, weak, false gospel of the false teachers. So these false teachers have come to Ephesus and they've, some of them have come from the outside. Some of them have come from the inside and they are, they're spouting off all of this false doctrine. But it leads, as we saw in, in earlier in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it leads to speculations. It leads to an, an empty speculation of the truth that doesn't actually change lives. And Paul says in verse 5, five the aim of our charge is love. Love that is birthed from a pure heart 
and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The aim of what we are doing is that people would be transformed from being lovers of self to being lovers of God. And as lovers of God, they, may, they now may become lovers of other people. That the gospel of Jesus is transformative. And as he culminates that last section on the law of God that we talked about last week, and it ends with this, how the law and the gospel go together in accordance in verse, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which, which, with which I have been entrusted. So Paul has been entrusted. He's been given this stewardship of proclamation that he has been entrusted to preach the gospel, to, to spread it, to propagate it, To make sure that it goes everywhere that it can go while he has breath in his lungs. And as he's talking about the gospel, it leads him into a little bit of of a biography moment. Where he says, I thank him, this is God, who has given me strength, or namely Christ Jesus our Lord. So that the one who has strengthened Paul is Christ Jesus our Lord. It's easy for us to kind of blitz over that. And let's get on to the rest of it. But Paul has just breathed in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's just breathed out a full orbed testimony of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The one who has strengthened him is not just Jesus, the Nazarene, but he is not less than that. But this is Jesus, the Nazarene, who is Jesus, the anointed Messiah. Our Lord, our Kyrios, our master, our ruler. Later on in the same passage in verse 17, it ends to the king. So that Jesus is all of these things. Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed Messiah promised in the Old Testament. He is the son of Mary and the, if you will, the adopted son of Joseph. He lived in, in Nazareth and then Galilee, he had an earthly ministry. But this Jesus, who was crucified at the hands of Pontius Pilate's goons, died upon the cross, was buried, truly dead, and rose three days later, and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he is Lord. He's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He says in Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me. All authority, everything, any authority, any human power, any other power is answerable or answers to Christ. And this same Christ who is Lord of all has strengthened Paul. And as we'll begin to see in this passage, the strengthening work of Jesus is a work of mercy and a work of grace. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful. It's, it's easy to mix up what's happening with the grammar here or the syntax. Syntax just simply means the order of words. On first blush, you might read this and say, I thank, thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, and, and he, because he judged me faithful. You might read that thinking he strengthened me because he judged me faithful. Right? But really what's happening here, he's thanking Jesus Christ who strengthened him. He's thanking Christ that he has been judged faithful. Do you understand the difference? He's, he is not thanking Jesus necessarily 
He's not thanking Jesus that he has been judged faithful because of his something that's in him. The, the danger is, this is what I'm trying to push, push against, that if we read this wrong, we're going to say, uh, Jesus Christ has done this work in Paul because there's something in Paul. Right? I am, I am, uh, I've been, I'm faithful because so he has strengthened me. But what's happening here is that Jesus has strengthened him and Paul is thanking Jesus for judging him faithful and appointing him to his service so that ultimately Jesus strengthening him is the root of Paul's faithfulness. Christ's strengthening power in Paul's life is the source of his faithfulness, not the cause of it. I mean, it's not the, not the derivative of it. I'm not doing a good job right here, okay? But what I want you to see is that Christ doesn't do a work in Paul's life because Paul's great. And that's going to become evident in a second. Jesus does not do a work in Paul's life thinking, well, he's faithful, so I'm going to strengthen him. No, Christ does a work in Paul's life, so therefore Paul is faithful. You understand the order of events here? Okay. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So the two things that Paul is giving thanks to Jesus for is that he's been judged faithful and that he's appointed to his service. But both of those things find their root and their cause in the strengthening power of Jesus. Both Paul's faithfulness or his trustworthiness and his being a servant of Christ and of the gospel are rooted in the strengthening mercy, the strengthening grace. And as we'll see in a second, the strengthening mercy and the strengthening grace of Christ are transformative. A good parallel, if you're thinking, Jacob, that's not how I read the passage. We'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. It's an unrelated subject that Paul's dealing with. He's talking about marriage and unwedded and widows and all sorts of stuff. But just notice the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. But I give my judgment. He's he's saying, this is what I'm saying. uh, As one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. The word trustworthy there is the same word as faithful in 1 Timothy. So he's saying, by the Lord's mercy, I'm trustworthy. By God's transformative mercy, I'm now faithful for Jesus's work. Because of what the Lord has done in me, I'm now faithful to do his commission. It is not Jesus responding to something in Paul, but it's Paul responding to the merciful power of Christ in his life. So it's transformative. This is what Jesus has done, even though, verse 13, even though I was formerly in this horrid trinity of Paul's fallenness, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent opponent. So that Jesus is strengthening here. It's, it's, it's evident here that Jesus's strengthening work in Paul's life is a product of grace alone. It is not something that Paul had such great potential, but in fact, Paul was such a horrid sinner that he was blaspheming the name of God. And he was encouraging in in, uh, some of Paul's testimony in the book of Acts. He says that he was encouraging other people to blaspheme the name of the Lord. 
Blaspheme simply means that you you're saying something untrue about God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So he was saying he was he was using his platform as one who was commissioned by the high priests to blaspheme God. To bring dishonor and disrepute to the God who sent his son to die for sinners. And he was a persecutor. This was evident, right? And Paul, if you've read the book of Acts, that Paul was one who, who was given the charge to go and arrest Christians or, or followers of the way and have them thrown in. And in fact, he was there standing on the sidelines collecting the coats while Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to get to death. So that Paul, he is not a rock star before the grace of God. He has not earned what Jesus has done. He was blaspheming, he was persecuting, and he was an insolent opponent. That he was arrogant, prideful, even violent. As he made war, not just upon Jesus' people, but upon Jesus himself. Remember that dialogue that that Paul has with the, the risen and ascended Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That what Paul was doing to Jesus' people, Paul was perpetrating against Christ. And what you should begin to see just in this this three-headed monster is that Paul was a violent opponent of God and God's gospel in this world. And so that the strengthening, intercepting mercy and grace of God was stronger than, greater than, Paul's rebellion. It was greater than Paul's sin. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. You see, mercy and grace of the Lord overflowing toward Paul. And the product of the overflowing mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus are the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The products of mercy and grace intersecting Paul's life are love and faith. Remember again, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our command is love that comes from a pure heart, a heart that's made clean by the workings of God, that only God can make the unclean clean. Only God can take our sin and forgive it. Only God can come to our dirty, wounded consciences and make them free. Only God can produce in unbelieving hearts true and sincere faith. Only God can do these things. Paul could not do it. It took the strengthening mercy and grace of Jesus. To come into his life in a very startling way. If you remember the Damascus Road, right? He's, he's bebopping along with two other guys and he's going to persecute Christians in Damascus. And here comes Christ. And some of you today need that. You need that wake up. You need that confrontation with the true and living God. You need the mercy and the grace of God to come in and produce in you true faith and true love towards God. You need to surrender to Jesus. You need to call out for this. You need to cry out saying, God, give me the faith. 
help me trust you. You need to call out and say, God, forgive me for loving myself and loving my sin and loving my rebellion. Help me to love you above all others. Mercy and grace. It does us no good. It does us no good. It does us no good. If we try to attribute to the person that which can o- that only God can do. If I believed that somehow you who are outside of Christ, not in the natural person, as Scripture says, that somehow you could drum up love towards God and faith towards God by your own willpower. I'm going to be bending. I'm going to be guilting you. I'm going to be emotionalizing you. I'm going to be twisting your arm. But all we have to do, what Paul says, is that we plead. Be reconciled to God. Come to Christ. There's mercy and there's grace. Mercy is simply that you don't get what you do deserve. And grace is that you get what you don't deserve. In mercy, our sins are forgiven. Christ takes away our sins. And in grace, we are made sons and daughters of God. We are made heirs and co-heirs with Christ. It overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to see that there are, that's not just those two products of the mercy and grace that Christ pours out upon Paul. I've mentioned that there's union, right? Faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. An operation of God's grace in your life is that you are brought into spiritual connection with Christ so that what Christ has gone through is now yours. If you don't believe me, go read Ephesians chapter 2. I quoted it in my prayer, but, right, but God being rich in mercy with the great love with which he has loved us, made us alive together with Christ raised us with him, seated us with him so that any spiritual benefits that we might have, they are rooted and centered in the living Christ. And so God's grace, by grace, through faith, you are connected to Jesus. You're unioned to him so that he dies, you die to your old self. This is why we baptize the way we baptize, by the way. You die, you die in your old self. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. And you're raised to walk in newness of life. But the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 You're connected to Jesus by grace. Through faith. So God works in your life by the Holy Spirit bringing you alive, taking away the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh, changing your sinful, rotten nature and replacing it with an alive nature that that can love God now. It can obey Him. So you are unioned to Christ. And from Jesus, He is the fountain of all spiritual good. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you have any spiritual good, if you have any good standing with God, if you have any familiarity of being a son or a daughter of God, it is because of Jesus. If you have any notion that your sins are forgiven, that you are not held condemned today, it is because of Jesus. 
If you have any hope of heaven, it is because of Jesus. If we have any spirit testifying in our hearts that we're children of God, it is because of Jesus. It all flows from Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, you have separated yourself from the fountain of spiritual waters that would bring life to your soul. Be reconciled to God in Christ. Secondly, flowing from union, the product of grace is salvation. Verse 15, if you want to memorize anything this week, don't memorize the box score. I know it's college football season, almost. I told Sarah Beth, this is peach. It's peach. And Carolina or Clemson, they're not playing yet. It's peach. Don't tell me any different. I don't want to hear it at the door. It's peach. It's not football season. It's almost there. Okay. <laughs> I'm a Carolina fan if you guys are... If you want to, if you want to pity me or uh, love me, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you want, don't memorize all the depth charts and schedule and everything else. Memorize verse fifteen. This is a saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul says this three or four times through the pastoral epistles: First Timothy, Second Timothy, Titus, uh, and it's like it's like a highlighter. Paul gives you a highlighter in the text. Pay attention to this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. One product of God's grace in our lives is that by faith we're unioned to Jesus so that we get all of his benefits. He gets all of our sin. We get all, all of his benefits. We get his righteousness. He gets our unrighteousness. Secondly, we are saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. And one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin because Jesus paid our debt for us. We do not believe in penance because Christ has paid it all. He said it is finished. It is not for you to work off your own guilt. Christ has died, dear one. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is Christ who has died. More than that, he has risen. Romans chapter 8. So we're saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. That right now, God is dislodging all of the foundations of rebellion that reside even now. That the work of us growing up in grace is that he's, gonna, he's, he's delivering us from the power that once where sin held sway over us. And once had dominion over us. We couldn't help, almost... To do and say and to feel these things. God is doing a work in our lives and he's sanctifying us. He's making us holy. And then one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. One day we will be raised into a new heavens and a new earth. And there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more death. New heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. is all of grace. And dear ones, it will be all of grace until eternity doesn't run out. All of grace, you are saved. You will be residing on streets of gold, walking with the, in the presence of Jesus, and it will be all of grace. Nothing you have done earns you that place. No law-keeping today, no obedience today. It is all of Jesus. And if there's anything that in me that would compel me towards God, it is a product of Christ's work in me. I can't take any credit and neither can you. Thirdly, finally, the product of God's grace in us, right? Number one, we're unioned to Christ. 
Number two, we're saved from sin, from its penalty. We're being saved from its power and we will be saved from its presence. And then finally, we get eternal life. I've already mentioned this a little bit. Um, But I receive verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost parentheses sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Heaven belongs only. Well, it belongs to God. Those who get into heaven who enter into God's eternal presence is only for those who trust in Christ. And the encouragement that you should have right now is that if God did this in someone who is blaspheming his name, who is persecuting and perpetrating potentially murder against Christians, and then violently shaking his fist at the God who made him. If God can do this in this man's life, he's holding it up as his biographical example saying, look at what Christ has done. And look at what Jesus can do. He can forgive. I don't care what you have. What that sin is that's haunting you. What that thing is that is anchoring you in the flesh apart from God. Jesus is bigger and better and more powerful. He can free you. He can break the addictions. He can free you from the sin. He can bring you into the powerful presence of God. And eternal life is not just duration, but it's quality. We get eternal life for eternity, right? It never ends. But eternal life is the abundant life in the presence of Christ today by the Spirit. And this is the product, all products of grace. You're unioned, you're saved, and you have eternal life, and it is of grace. Paul sets out his life saying, I once was in the muck and the mire, and I thought I was something. I had every reason to boast in the flesh. I learned all these things. I knew all the law, and I was zealous for the law, and I thought I was following God. And yet in all of that, I was sinning and mounting up wrath against myself. But God, and he holds forth his life as an example. He says, you surrender your life into the hands of the master jeweler. And he will come and he will clean, he'll he'll bring true transformation. He'll clean you up, he'll remove all the dirt, remove all of the soil, remove all of the guilt, all of the shame, and he'll bring you into his workshop. He'll do the work of pruning away the edges, of sanding this and cutting this, so that you might be, as he says in Ephesians chapter 2:10, that we are his workmanship. That you would be a demonstration, a living example of what the grace of God does in a person's life. And you have a powerful testimony. I don't care what your testimony is. It's a testimony of God's grace and it is powerful. Where he brings you out and he saves you and he's reshaping you into the image of Jesus. So that the glory of God might shine and refract in all of those different angles in your life. 
So the glory of God would shine in your church life and the glory of God might shine in your home life, might shine in your work life, might shine in your community, might shine in worship towards him, might shine in your marriage, in parenting, whatever it is, that the glory of God, as Jesus does his whole person, holistic work in your life, that the glory of God might catch light and shine in you. And so in this way, by the Lord's work in your life, you would become a living sermon. A testimony of the grace of God every single day and every single breath. Robert Coleman, who I was telling some of the guys this morning, who wrote probably the, one of the great, a really great book. I won't like rank it against others, but I'm having to read it again for class. I've read it several times before, but it's called The, the Master Plan of Evangelism. And in it, he says that one living sermon is worth a hundred explanations. Now, he might push this point a little too far for me, but one living sermon. And you, as you experience the grace of God, as faith erupts from your transformed heart, love towards God, love towards neighbor, you begin to live on Jesus's agenda rather than your own. Dear one, you become a living sermon. Now there's a, there's a double-edged sword to that, right? That as you claim the name of Jesus, you should be a living sermon of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love. The fruit of the Spirit should be growing in you. It's not an automatic thing, but it should be growing in you. But if you're claiming the name of Jesus, and all you've done is that you've, you've taken a, a rock from the river And you've put it, you've set it in a diamond setting and you've put it on your ring. What would people think? Somebody has lied somewhere. That's not a diamond. The jeweler hasn't touched that. That hasn't been washed. That hasn't been cleaned. But what I want you to get is that the diamond doesn't clean itself. The jeweler does the cleaning, does the shaping. Jesus must clean you. You do not clean yourself. But if you're walking around this world and you're claiming the name of Jesus and nothing has happened, there's been no change in your life. And perhaps you've been walking with him for years and years and years and years. And still your life looks like a muddy rock. Do you understand what I'm saying? By muddy rock. It's still marked by everything that it was marked for by before you named Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're baptized and none of the dirt gets off, then you might need to come back to Christ and say, Lord, would you wash me? What is my, have a true examination of your life. So the question is, I mean, if there's one application, if you're to be a living sermon, where has God put you that that message must be shared? Where has God put you that the glory of God should be refracted in your life? In word and in deed. Where is it that this message of the gospel of Christ, that Jesus saved sinners, where does that need to be shared? To who needs to see it? And some of you, as I said earlier, you need that encounter. And today needs to be the day. 
where you cry out to Christ. Scripture says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So come with your warts, your baggage, your muck, your mire, your sin, your fear, your guilt, your shame. And let Christ do something in your life. Surrender to him. For all of this, the grace of God, the grace of God and the gospel, us being living sermons, all of these things culminate in worship. This is the great purpose for which we exist. To demonstrate and proclaim the glory of God and the gospel that Jesus saves sinners. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As Paul thinks about his biography, his spiritual biography, and what Jesus has done, and the powerful gospel that has brought him from where he was to where he is, he has no other recourse but to praise God. If you think that you have saved yourself, you're going to be praising yourself. But if you know that you're saved by grace and grace alone through faith, you're going to praise God. Because you could not have done it. Only Christ could have done it. If there's any love towards God in your heart today, it is a good gift of God in you. We have various appointments. And God has promised to accomplish his will through his word. So I pray you have heard in faith and you will consider what is it the Lord would have you do today. You cannot leave the same. You either will step further into unbelief or you'll step deeper into faith. Choose today. Will you follow Christ? Will you surrender to him? Or will you continue in your way? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your, just the beauty of the gospel, the, the scandal of it. That while every other message of religion and of philosophy and of culture tells us about how we, are, we can better ourselves, that we can earn our standing that we can secure our place in glory or that we can uh, settle our minds by meditation or, or whatever all of these false gospels teach us. The true gospel of Christ is Jesus died to save sinners. And Lord, we know that we have no other way but you. You have said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you, Jesus. So we surrender. And I pray for those who hear, who need, who need to surrender. Would you have mercy, O Lord, and move in them. Would you build up your church and sanctify us that we might be living sermons, living stones cut and shaped by the Master Christ to demonstrate your goodness and your glory in this dark world. Have your way. Accomplish your will, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.